Radio Drone. I'm fed up with the scum of San Francisco, and I'm sure you are too on a Thursday night with me, Josh Hadley. Cecil and Alex are not going to be on tonight. They've got the week off, but I dredge the depths of the internet to pull in a couple of special people for tonight, put special in quotes, like Mike White from the Projection Booth. Well-known internet troll that I am. Damn you and your internet trolling. And then we also have... Can I call you Frederick or just Fred Fritz from Erase, Rewind, and Movie Apocalypse? Just Fred will do, uh, and I am a well-known stalker of the city streets at night. Let's do the Adam and Eve promo first. So you go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME to get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free mystery gift, and U.S. and free U.S. shipping, all for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Now, tonight we've got a special retrospective. Technically, it's a remake of an old, like, the second episode of Radio Drome ever, so nearly 200 episodes ago. We're going to be looking at the Dirty Harry franchise. So before we get into my thoughts, what are your thoughts on the franchise as a whole before we get into the individual films? Wow, good question. Franchise as a whole... Uh, I don't think it's the most solid franchise ever. I think it starts off really strong and then peters out from there. I am uh, interested to kind of go through each film individually to, to see where it we think that it might falter at. But uh, yeah, it, it's it started off really good. Well, actually, I, I do agree with Mike. Uh, I think that uh, for something that was not intended to be a franchise, it's okay comparative to some. But yeah, it, it starts off solid. I think the first three films kind of work, you know, for what they for what they were supposed to be. And then after that, it just kind of goes off the rails. And see, I'd agree with you, except and we'll get into it more in detail. But I really liked the fifth film, but probably not for the reasons that I should have. Let's start at the beginning. 1971's Dirty Harry by Don Siegel. I think this film personally, it works great. It's a great time capsule of both the early 1970s, but also in the, the first in what I considered a shift in films. Prior to Dirty Harry, I always saw, especially cop films, still kind of following the dragnet formula of the upright, stout, always honest LAPD detective, usually LAPD or New York, that you know would, would never tell a lie. And then you've got Dirty Harry Callahan coming in and saying, the system does not work and there's a new breed of criminal out there, and you need a new breed of cop. I think the first film works remarkably well, even today when you look back at it. I have to agree entirely. In fact, I think that uh, it's interesting looking at the first film and the last film, that the first film is what uh, a lot of us would call a, uh, like a linchpin or a, a door hinge film. Film does change after Dirty Harry. There's no doubt about it. Uh, not just police thrillers, but... I think film in general begins to change dramatically, and uh, we definitely begin to see that beginning of that 1970s, I, I don't want to say, well, I guess more of a nihilistic viewpoint, you know, uh, things I, are definitely I, I darker. Think, I think, do you mean more pessimistic than optimistic? <sighs> sure, definitely. They're definitely more uh, darker. Things don't always end happily, really up until, you know, the, the big change from Star Wars and beyond. 
Yeah, definitely not nearly as uh, optimistic. Definitely. I see this one kind of playing with some older tropes. Um, it, it used to be very much the private detective who was kind of outside the law and would have to play by their own rules in order to solve whatever case they're on. I'm sure that there had been instances of cops kind of going off the reservation and doing what they needed to do to solve a case. So I see Dirty Harry kind of playing in that same space. I think that the combination of Eastwood with his kind of um, uh, cold, gravelly performance and kind of coming off of some of the roles that he had done before, mixed with Don Siegel, who he had worked with before as well, I think that that really kind of came together and they kind of just kicked everything up a little bit to have this cop who was trying to work within the system but really had to push against the walls whenever he came up against it. So I see it as kind of playing in the same sandbox as some of the earlier stuff, especially some of the film noirs and everything. And I thought that it was interesting, too, that they set it in San Francisco, which was kind of a a nice stomping ground for a lot of really good old detective films. So I like that Harry is a he's not just a cop. He is a detective. And that's really what these films have going for them is that he's such a good detective and works his way through these cases very well. Well, Mike, you you brought up how great Eastwood fits into this. What about if Eastwood had not been in in this film? Because originally, and I think all of these choices would have been disasters, he was the fifth person to be offered the role. This was originally written for John Wayne, who I think would have been disastrous in this part. Then it was offered to Frank Sinatra. Actually wouldn't have been that bad, but still wrong. Robert Mitchum, no. And finally, Burt Lancaster. Do you think that Eastwood is what holds this together? Or do you think the same script with Don Siegel's direction, with John Wayne, Frank Sinatra, Robert Mitchum, or Burt Lancaster, would have had the same cultural impact? I don't think so. I think that, well, I'm trying to think of how old those guys would have been at the time. And I think that Eastwood was, I don't want to say significantly younger because he was, I, I think, know. I think they say on the commentary he was 52 when he made this, I think. He was definitely of that kind of second generation. You know, the, I can think of each of those guys that you mentioned being in some of these films noir that Dirty Harry seemed to be kind of playing with. And I think that Eastwood really kind of brought a freshness to the role that these other guys might not have. Well, obviously, it would have been a completely different film just because of those other people even had different directors attached to them. But like you said, if it was still Don Siegel and let's say it was still the same script even and the same approach, uh, I agree with you that Frank Sinatra, I don't know. You know, he we've seen him in other films where he played the hard boiled, disenfranchised, you know, police officer. Uh, you know, he him may be closer than others, but definitely not Wayne or even like I know Paul Newman was even up for this, too. And it would have been a completely different film. I really think that what you're seeing also is the beginning of Eastwood as an institution, and that's important to note. Well, this was the film that made Eastwood a star. I mean, people knew him from westerns and stuff like that, but this was the film that made Eastwood a household name. I do want to mention real quick, with Robert Mitchum having been considered for the Dirty Harry role, Robert Mitchum's younger brother, John Mitchum, is in the first three Dirty Harry films as Frank DiGiorgio. I don't know if that was he got that part due to Mitchum having been in the running or if that's just a coincidence. One thing I think we're leaving off here is also as far as just the approach to Dirty Harry is that Mike had brought up. Yeah, there was an older feel. The idea of the lone detective, lone hero is definitely something that's been around for quite a while. But the thing that makes Dirty Harry different than so many others is that it was intentionally intended to be from the point of view of the detectives, the police officers themselves, or the inspectors as they are in in San Francisco, uh, that they are the minorities in the story, which is kind of an unusual approach, that they're the ones that are being bigoted against, which is different from any other police story that had ever been that uh, there literally that was a a sign of the times i think because it was a sign of the time but i'm just saying that was the approach though too yeah which is one of the reasons it was so different because Mm -hmm. you've got this film whether it intended i've heard different stories on what what the fink script was intended to be some of some stories say that they're version of the law doesn't work you know the criminals have more rights than an average citizen etc etc was kind of supposed to be a satire on on that whole subgenre at the same time 
I've heard other stories saying that they were a couple of right-wing psychos who really thought that. So I don't know if we're supposed to realize that the Scorpio killer is abusing the system, or are we supposed to think that Harry being hamstrung by the system and the rules is sort of going off the reservation, as the term Mike put it? Well, I think having Milius as one of the uncredited screenwriters on here really kind of helps play up that kind of right-wing angle if we were to look at it that way. And also, I had mentioned the setting of San Francisco before. I think putting it in this kind of once hotbed, you know, we're only three years after the summer of love or whatever, and here we are at, you know, Hate and Ashbury, and having this kind of, um, you know, this clash of the cultures between the hippies and the, the law and everything, I think is is very telling as well. We also have to point out Andrew Robinson, or sorry, Andy Robinson, as he was still credited at this point, is just fantastic as oh, yeah. the Scorpio killer. Oh, without doubt. If you didn't know him from interviews and later roles, you'd think they hired an actual psychopath off the streets to play the Scorpio killer. That, and, and this being his first role ever, that speaks to what we later get with like Elam Garrick and things like that down the line. Don't you agree? Yeah, he is fantastic. I pretty much knew him first from his role in Charlie Varick, another Don Siegel film. So they had a, a good working relationship after this. But yeah, he's just this giggling, menacing, and so freaking clever. And that's what the scary thing is about him is just how smart he is. And that's I, I think that having him as the villain in this piece really is what makes this one kind of stand out. And I imagine that that's what helped, you know, push this one really far into the spotlight is just how good of a, of a criminal you have for Harry to go against. One scene I've always loved in this movie. And I think sells the whole thing is it really, it's sort of all the ideas and themes of this movie in one scene. And that's where uh, Harry tracks the Scorpio killer down to the stadium, uh, shoots him and then walks over to him and he's spouting, you know, I have rights. And it's the way he's delivering these lines. You know, he's there's terrified. An, there's such an arrogance behind them. There's arrogance. Yeah, he, he's like, I still control. I'm, st But yet the fear and that shot of like Harry stepping on his leg. And then we get that wonderful helicopter that shot. That is such a gorgeous <sighs> shot for the 70s. That is That is a gorgeous shot. I can't imagine the long lens they had on that. Because that is one uninterrupted pullback shot, obviously from a helicopter, that goes from almost a close-up to almost just a pinpoint on the horizon. Nowadays, if you saw that, you'd go, oh, CGI did that. But that was 100% practical and probably quite expensive, too. But his acting in that scene is amazing. Uh, it, it really differentiates him from anybody else who would have played that role. You know, we said about Clint Eastwood. Well, I think that there's just no doubt that if if Robinson hadn't played this role, it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been in the same ballpark. If you excuse the pun. <laughs> well, then you also but then you have the cultural impact that Dirty Harry had. Like we said before, this film was was the the turning point. This is when films in general, especially cop films, started to get more violent and more arguably serious. Why do you think that this this movie in 1971, made on a four million dollar budget, making 35 million, why do you think it struck such a cultural nerve in 1971? Let's face it, the script itself. Let's take the performances out. It, it's not bad, but it's nothing groundbreaking. It's how everything coalesces that I think made a great film. But why do you think the audiences latched onto this in 1971? Well, I could see it being kind of this reactionary thing. You know, I, I talked about the Summer of Love and everything, and this was kind of this, I don't want to say backlash against it, but it was definitely coming at things from a different point of view. But I think to just audiences were ready for this kind of material at the time. I mean, this is 1971. We are, you know, the, this is when the American New Wave is really kind of taking off, and we've got so many great films coming out all at one time. And amongst those, you know, Dirty Harry stands out as just being such a solid story and such a well-made film. And it it still stands up today. I watched it just a couple of days ago, and it it still keeps my interest. And it's I'm right there with it every single turn. And I like the way that they blend the everyday life of of Harry Callahan with this mystery that he's trying to un, uh, unravel, and then also kind of mixing in those um you know the the 
torn from the headlines stuff with the Zodiac Killer by kind of recasting him as Scorpio. Yeah, it was topical. And I think that when you look at what the film, you got the Zodiac Killer angle right off the bat, and that's going to bring people in. It's a well-written script, well-directed script, well-acted script. So there's why it sustains its life over a period of time. But it addresses issues that affect every single one of us. I don't care what your right wing, left wing, whatever. The subject of people's rights alone is something that is always topical. And this film wanted to definitely view things from the point of view. Do the victim's rights ever become less than or more than those who commit the crimes? That's always going to be topical. And then I do want to point out before we move on, I don't know if this would have changed his career or not, but Terrence Malick, yes, that Terrence Malick wrote a draft of this screenplay. And I wonder if they had used his draft, which was about wealthy criminals who had escaped justice. I don't know if we would have had crap like Tree of Life today. Well, I think a lot of his draft actually ended up being used for Magnum Force, the second film. So I think it was kind of a, a meeting of the minds between Malik and Milius and then another screenwriter, if memory serves. So, yeah, it, it's very I was very surprised <laughs> when I read that. Uh, I read that he, and I'm like, I, I that can't be the same Terrence Malik that makes yeah. these pointless, terrible art films, can it? Well, you know, he wasn't always doing that. So he actually made some decent films. <laughs> way back (laughs) before he took that long break and he came back and I kind of wish that he hadn't, but that's a whole other topic. Well, then let's move on to, they took two years to make the sequel Magnum Force. And I think right off the bat, they made a good decision by not calling it Dirty Harry 2. Not linking these via numbers, I think was a great thing for the franchise overall. Now you have much more of John Milius's influence on this. Magnum Force feels like a John Milius-written film. It's very much, and I'm not saying this in a snide way, John Milius has this whole being a man and being a Viking and a warrior and a barbarian kind of thing in all of the scripts he writes, and that's very much reflected in Magnum Force. This is a very non-homoerotic, manly movie, and that just bleeds through the film. Magnum Force didn't work for me as well, It's an all right movie. I think it's over long. The film is over two hours long, and you could easily have cut a half hour out of this, and I don't think hurt the story at all. What I like about Magnum Force is the fact that you see, even though Harry thinks that the law is stopping him from doing his job, he's got a point. He will not go over this line. And when you've got Tim Matheson, David Soule, and Robert Urich as police officers that are executing criminals without a trial, even Harry goes, you've stepped too far. So I think with Michael Cimino and John Milius writing this, and I don't know if 73 was the right time. I don't know. Magnum Force just didn't work right for me. With Magnum Force, I think what you have here is going up to Eastwood and them and hitting them on the shoulder and saying, good try, guys. Uh, (laughs) This is a great idea. Again, wonderfully cast. There is so much good in the movie However, I think it does fail, ultimately. I think it's too segmented. It's overlong, as you've already stated. I could have done without the terrorist on the airplane scene completely. It adds nothing to the film. Uh, There's also another scene in a grocery store. Again, it really adds nothing to the film. And there's one scene in the film I've always loved, and I think it sort of captures what the film is about. And that's the scene in the parking garage when Harry is finally approached by the police officers. And, you know, this is sort of the seduction, you know, the devil, you know, offering Christ on the Mount. Yeah. And that scene is so perfect because they're in the shadows and Harry is literally standing in the light. And we see the difference between Harry and this sort of fascist regime, what the law could become. It just it it's a great idea and it has so much potential and maybe just one or two more rewrites could have made this film into something amazing. The gun range scene is another wonderful scene where Harry is shooting the targets and then the last target he hits is a police officer and someone yells, he shot one of the good guys, of course, raising the question, are they? These are moments that say there was a great idea and a much better film could have come from it. 
Well, apparently I'm in the minority. I agree that it is a little long as well, but I really like this one. And I especially like that not only do we have the the layer of the cops versus Harry and his, you know, trying to uncover the mystery. I like the whole idea that there are multiple cops so that we don't necessarily know who's doing this. It's kind of like a built-in red herring. And then to add to that, that Holbrook, Hal Holbrook as Harry's superior is running this whole thing, even though he's been on Harry's ass the entire film to me just works wonderfully. I really like that reveal and it, you know, this is not one that I forget as I watch, you know, watch it a a second or third time. This is one that I, I definitely remember his reveal as to who he is and everything. And so I really love the way that this whole thing comes together. And I love that it kind of, makes us question you know we talked in dirty harry about uh, how harry has to work a little bit outside of the system in order to get things done and really has to push against the law and in this one it really makes you question it even more because we do have this vigilante force who is doing all this quote-unquote good but yet you know they are ultimately something that harry really can't get behind and that even his superiors are kind of running this it's like okay yeah i i really like all of the the material that comes out of this film. Do you think that Magnum Force, with what we've discussed here, was sort of a pushback to some of the controversy about Dirty Harry? Because a lot of people called Dirty Harry a fascist fantasy film. And then you got Magnum Force and you see that Harry will not cross that line and Harry is fighting against those who do. Do you think that's a coincidence that that happens, or do you think that was an answer to the critic? Sort of like how in RoboCop 2, all of the sanitizing all the prime directives was a response to the criticism of the first film. Do you think this was a response to the criticism of Dirty Harry? Yes, I do. Uh, I think it's more than apparent, and that's just good writing in general. I, again, I, I don't want to sound like I hate this film. I can watch Magnum Force. I don't hate it. I, my problem is, is the mistakes in it. You know, again, I just felt it could have used a couple of rewrites. But yes, uh, undoubtedly, it's looking at this from the other side of the equation, and it's it's directly answering those criticisms. Uh, Harry's partner is black, obviously, because of the controversy about the line from the first movie, you know, the, I got to know, you know, and it was a black bank robber and there was controversy about that and this is addressing the object of fa- the idea of fascism and harry was a fascist and this is answering that question directly the, the scene in the parking garage i think is a direct answer to it it's interesting that you know the the core idea was there from before uh from even the first film but yeah it definitely i can see them kind of using this a, a, to kind of respond to things but i i think it's it's a it's a problem that we've seen addressed before, this whole idea of how much can you take the law into your own hands? How much do you have to work within the system? How much do you have to rely on the system to actually work? I mean, this one felt very much more like a Western than a detective novel, than a detective film. So I really kind of appreciated uh, that they seem to be playing with that genre as well. And Magnum Force still struck a chord with audiences. It made millions of dollars past its budget. And I don't know if the long gap between sequels is due to anything other than development issues or Eastwood's availability since he's becoming a superstar at this point. But then we don't get the next Dirty Harry film until 1976. With The Enforcer, we start to see how things are changing. I don't have an issue with the whole Harry gets a female partner this time, which I've seen a lot of places dismiss as, oh, it's, you know, the the feminism means he's got to have a female partner. No, I think it was logical. I thought Tyne Daly and him had great chemistry. She was actually a three-dimensional character, and I thought the enforcer, that all the stuff with Harry works, all the stuff with the Symbionese Liberation Front does not work. That is so dated to just being topical when the movie came out, and I don't think aged very well. For some reason, The Enforcer is the most hated of all of the Dirty Harry films. I enjoyed it immensely. I don't know what that says about me. Yeah, I had no problem with this film. I mean, I thought that the feminism was a little heavy-handed with that kind of ballbuster woman that was in the interrogation room or the questioning room. But, I mean, really, I'm trying to remember what the other film was that I watched right around this time, and it was also from the mid-50s, or sorry, mid-70s. 
and it had this whole um, sexism thing going on, and it was just kind of the accepted way of the day. So I definitely appreciated that. You know, if had, if they had made this film today, we're doing this as kind of a throwback, kind of a Ron Burgundy, uh, somebody stuck in the in the seventies kind of thing. This would have been really heavy handed, but knowing when it was made, it felt tonally right. And I agree with you that the the whole liberation plot and all that kind of stuff a little too much. Again, kind of ripped from the headlines and everything. I could see this being in like a Law and Order episode or something. So I really, yeah, it didn't really do a whole lot for me. I did like that whole idea of Albert Popwell showing up for a third time as Mustafa in this one and this kind of uneasy uh, alliance that he and Harry form in this film. You know, the the man comes down on Mustafa, even though Harry is trying to be a friend to him and how they kind of um, get that friendship back a little bit, I thought was nice. Well, this will go uh, to what we you asked earlier about the franchise, and this is one thing that for me becomes a problem with the Dirty Harry films uh, from about this point on, is that if you look at the way Harry becomes involved with the Scorpio killer, the way, of course, Harry is very personally involved with the police officers in Magnum Force, now we start to get into stories where Harry is not necessarily directly involved with or has a relationship with the villains of the piece you know you pointed out that this these characters are far-fetched and, and they are they're they're obviously you know they're, they're meant to represent an extreme what all these films are kind of going for but in this case this is the first one where now it's getting cartoony harry has no direct interaction with them really until about the end of the film and i think that is one of the largest problems with the film is that there's no connection there, and that was one of the pluses of the other two films. Now there's next to no connection. I mean, his partner is shot, his uh, his other partner, but outside of that, he doesn't interact with them. There's no emotional ties for us to tie us to these villains. The stuff with Tyne Daly is without a doubt the best part of the movie, in my opinion. We've seen briefly— I thought, I thought she and he had genuine chemistry. I agree, and I felt it's one of the few things that continues a theme in all three films. In the first film, we learn Harry had a wife, and she was killed by a drunk driver. In the second film, we see uh, one of Harry's friends, his wife, make you know hits on him. Uh, we also see him have a relationship with an Asian woman uh, in the apartment complex. So you see just how lonely he is, how lonely it is to be a police officer, how it affects other people. In this film, now he's getting a female partner. The idea of women being police officers is addressed. And of course, there is something kind of there. It's never said. It's never pushed. There's no kissing and nothing like that. It's never taken to this, the next level. Which thankfully. would have been a disastrous mistake yes. had they. I agree. That's why I said thankfully. But there's something there, and it's addressed through honesty. And I think that how it's heavy-handed, as Mike said, is simply because it was an issue of the time. And that's why it was heavy-handed at the time. But uh, my, my two favorite elements are her and Mustafa, played by Albert uh, Popwell again, whom I loved in this film. <laughs> I, I wish he would have come back. That's that's really the... It's, I, I like The Enforcer, by the way, as a whole. I enjoy the film. And it's just... that's This is where, in my opinion... We start to lose that hairy villain connection, and that's that's not a good thing. Well, I think it's a little telling, too, that this one does seem to really kind of end the franchise, for me anyway, because we have that nice shot at the very end where um, we've got Harry on Alcatraz, and you know the camera is is leaving him basically and he for all we know you know obviously clint eastwood knows how to escape from alcatraz but for all we know harry is just going to be there you know we we end with him there back to being solitary he's lost tyne daly he's lost every partner that he's worked with except for chico gonzalez and you know it seems like a really fitting end to this series of films at that point i also want to point out with kate in this that, yes, she's a rookie and whatnot, and I actually do think she sells that quite well. Tyne Daly sells that quite well. But at the same time, you also get a different shift, and she saves Harry's life twice, not only in the same day, but once at the cost of her innocence. She's never even fired her gun before, so the first time she ever fires her gun is to kill a woman 
in a nun costume to save Harry's life, and then the next time is to give up her own life for Harry. Because there's that moment where he kind of looks at her body as he's getting pissed and picks up the Law's rocket where you, you almost get the feeling this was the straw that broke Harry Callahan. I liked that moment, or perhaps I'm reading way too much into it. No, I can totally see that. I, I think that that's where the dynamism of this film comes from, is having this character who, you know, she's very, very smart, very savvy and everything. And yeah, this whole loss of innocence for her, but that she just takes it. She manages to get going. And I, I really felt this was the one time, I mean, I liked his other partners and everything other than the guy that he kind of starts out with on this one. Um, uh, what's his name? DiGiorgio. Um, Which is I one mean, of the I, only continuing characters, at least up to this point, other than Harry. I mean, I liked Chico Gonzalez. I liked Early Smith, but I didn't cry when Early passed away when he got the that mail bomb and everything. I thought that that worked really well for the dramatic tension of that scene and everything. It felt like Kate's death was just kind of a, well, we've killed the other partners, so let's kill her too. I think that their bonding in the film begins when Harry is being sort of railroaded into being an example of, uh, for the press, you know, oh, here's a female on the force, and they're given an accommodation they don't really deserve. It's a five-point suppository. Stick it up your ass! Yep. Uh, By the way, I want to point out, was an ad lib by Clint Eastwood. It's a great one. It's it is it's it's one of my favorites too. And when he walks out, she follows him, and you see the first bondings of the concept of what a partner is, and she gets that. And Harry definitely is drawn to that about her. So I think that's the moment when they start to become partners for real. And then what you said about the being you know the shootings and that that's it. I, I don't know how it should have ended with her. In all honesty, I think you can look at it from both points of view. And I I like the ending personally as it is but uh you know the enforcer has its problems and honestly this is also the film that in my opinion really begins what we see in our modern media when people make fun of this type of character which is like the scene where he drives a car right through the front of a a storefront window get the bad guys that's just ridiculous and i i don't believe the harry callahan of the first two movies would have done something like that he would never he believed in the victims that was one of the themes of the first two films in this film he's willing to drive a car right through a storefront with innocent people in it i don't buy that so there's a few extremes in this film that just don't work so this film the enforcer it didn't grab pop culture as much as the last two did and the series kind of went into hibernation on screen Now, there was a series of novels that came out starting in 1981, 13 of them. I've never read these, so I can't speak to them, but they were the only Dirty Harry products out there at the time. Have either of you read any of the books? I have not. Neither have I. Well, then we'll we'll just move past the books then. So then, all of a sudden, in 1983, we get Sudden Impact. This time... This time Clint Eastwood is taking the reins. He's not only producing it like he did the last two, but he's also starring in it and directing this one. And I think Sudden Impact is the worst film in the whole franchise. People in general hate The Enforcer. I can't stand Sudden Impact. I think the story is weak as hell. It comes across... There are so many lifetimey moments in this, what we would now call lifetimey moments, that it it almost made me roll my eyes. The character is starting to become what Fred pointed out, the caricature of Dirty Harry. It just doesn't work for me. Like, there's one point where Sandra Locke is remembering the, when she was raped under the boardwalk, and they have this superimposition of her eyes on the screen as the screen is fading into the flashback, and music, I swear, is a discarded music cue from a Dark Shadows episode starts. And I just went, are you serious? I can't stand Sudden Impact. I think had this movie not been called uh, a Dirty Harry film, that it still wouldn't have been any good. But, but it wouldn't have been as bad as it was. I mean, it felt a little, um, I don't know, like a, a reverse Coogan's Bluff kind of thing, where it's the big city detective who goes to the small town and everything. But they didn't even really play that up as much as they could have. It could have been more of a Doc Hollywood kind of a thing, giving Harry a dog was a big mistake giving him i mean i'm still trying to figure out 
kind of like what Albert Popwell was playing in this because he wasn't necessarily his partner. I guess that was just his friend or something in in that whole introduction scene of him kind of sneaking up on harry you know yeah i know it was just like a red herring kind of a scene but it was just so strange and it's like why would you be sneaking up on your friend who's out target practicing that that's really a bad move so there's yeah. a lot of plot problems in there. Yeah. But look, for instance, okay, the mob is trying to kill him because of what he did earlier in the film. So that's Which why he's Which was a kind of... lift from Magnum Force, it felt like. Yeah. And, and then the mob just, somehow they know where he is. They send one guy to his hotel room, and then that plot line is just completely abruptly dropped. Did we drop a page of the script? Yeah, that was just so weird. And yeah, those stupid flashbacks. I mean, we've never had a flashback in a previous Dirty Harry film. This one, it, it, I won't say that there's a lot of things that make a Dirty Harry film. As I was watching this, I was taking a lot of notes. And one of them was, you know, having Albert Popwell in the film. One of them was making sure that when Harry goes to get a bite of eat, bite to eat or a cup of coffee, that then there's some sort of like random violence or a crime happening that he always has to stop. You know, this one kind of did the same thing. You know, Popwell is there. He goes into a coffee shop and there's a, a crime happening and everything. It's still, it doesn't work. I mean, there's so many other things giving Harry a love interest. I mean, really the Asian lady in the second film, not really a love interest, more of just, you know, kind of a f- buddy. So there wasn't that before and you know harry shouldn't necessarily he can have a partner a police partner he can even have you know tyne daly where maybe had she survived there might have been a little sexual tension or whatever but don't give him a dog and don't give him a love interest i just this movie really lost a lot of points for me well this film has two major strikes against it in my opinion uh one is something i used to talk about on a race rewind every so often and it's what i call cinematic inbreeding it's when a character in the very first film, when when someone writes a script and obviously directs a movie, whatever, you know, whoever has the strength uh, to guide the direction of the characters. Let's take Indiana Jones as a great example. In Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's how far can what could a man survive, you know, being dragged behind a car? Well, he could survive that chased by a boulder. He could survive that. They ask these questions. What could a human being survive? By the time we get to the sequels, it's what could Indiana Jones survive? It's it's no longer about that human relatable element. And that's what I brought up about Enforcer with Harry driving the car through the, the storefront window in the third movie. Now we see that full bloom and sudden impact. Harry is no longer a human character we recognize. He's a caricature. There's been so much cinematic inbreeding by this point that, you know, in the very first film, when he there's the bank robbery, he gets shot. A lot of people don't remember that. He got shot in the leg. And he basically uh, just brushes it off and continues eating his hot dog. Yeah, he gets the crap knocked out of him by Scorpio to where he can barely talk even. Uh, in the films, he gets hurt in the other films. Even in Magnum Force, he's scared when he, you know, he thinks, hey, I don't know when the police force is trustworthy. But this film, there's nothing. I mean, this man is afraid of nothing. Nothing can hurt him. It's That's the very first problem. And the second, you both have already covered. It's a terrible script. It's not good. First part of it is okay if you're talking like 80s late night TV for police thriller, but it's not particularly good. And it's definitely not to the quality of a previous Dirty Harry film. And the second half is just unwatchable. It, the saying it's a lifetime movie, you've nailed it. It's just, it's dull. It's boring. And we have zero connection now to the the villains of the piece because Sandra Locke is sort of kind of the antagonist. You also I don't have, like this movie. You also have the complete betrayal of the Dirty Harry character. He lets her go. She right. Yes, she might have been just taking revenge on her gang rapists and the ones who put her sister in a coma, but she has murdered a minimum of five people and tortured them while she was doing it. And Harry just, well, you know, you were doing what you thought you had to do. That, I think, is a complete betrayal of the character we've seen in the previous three movies. Yeah, totally. I mean, we talked about in Magnum Force that whole idea of the tension about taking the law into your own hands. Yeah, he... (laughs) 
he should have brought her to justice. There needed to be that idea of even though you were doing the right thing, you were doing it in the wrong way and you should have been able to rely on the system for this. And yes, it was a corrupt town and everything. San Francisco is plenty corrupt and Hal Holbrook was corrupt in the second film. But, you know, he managed to do the right thing and and managed to prove that vigilantism is not the way to do it. By the time we get to this film, he's basically giving it a stamp of approval. And I just, you're right, it was a betrayal of the character and it was a betrayal of the audience for me. I agree. I, I agree completely. We have a scene even in the film where one of the rapists is now a businessman. He owns like a hardware store and he pleads with her. You know, he's begging her. You can even see he's distanced himself from the sort of scumbaggery of the other rapists. And it's kind of a hard scene to watch, you know, which is, again, that's what it's supposed to be. And so when you look at that scene and then Harry lets her go at the end, it doesn't it's a betrayal of Harry as a character. I think all the themes of the previous films and even that moment in the film. But then why do you think, since we've been talking about the cultural impact even though we still got one more film to do, this one, Sudden Impact, is the most financially successful of all the films. It made the most money relative to its budget of all the movies. Why do you think this one being, and we, I think it's safe to say all of us agreed on this, the worst of the franchise was the most popular? It's also the one, strangely enough, that's played on cable the most, too. They don't play the first three very often. They play Sudden Impact all the time. Why do you think this one, for all the problems it has, did hit pop culture the way it did. Well, I guess I have to offer a confession then. Um, this movie was 83, so I would have been 13. And I loved it. My dad took me to see it. You know, I was 13, so he had to go with me. And I loved it at the time. And I think that the real reason is, is that you said pop culture, and that's the answer right there. It fit in perfectly with the type of movies that were coming out at this time. It had all the quips, the one-liners, you know... It, it fit that mold of the time perfectly. The film even came about because Warner Brothers took a poll that they were interested in the James Bond franchise at that time because they had done Never Say Never Again. And so they asked the public, hey, what's your favorite franchise? That you know, Dirty Harry came up extremely high. That's why they made the movie. So I think that that's it. I think you're looking at a film 100% a product of its time for all the wrong reasons, unlike the first film. I don't know which camp comes first in this one. This seems a little chicken and eggish for me. But for me, you know, it comes down to those five words that our president said, go ahead, make my day. You know, this is the movie that this is one of these things where the president wants to be seen as a tough guy. He's the pop culture president. He is pop culture. He comes from that world. He wants to adopt this persona. He adopts Dirty Harry's line and uses it almost as a campaign slogan. So what came first? Was it the popularity of the film and then Reagan using the line? Or did Reagan using the line help push the popularity of the film? I'm not sure. I'm sure it's probably kind of more of a symbiosis. It's probably 50-50. So, but yeah, it definitely was right there. This is 83 when this thing comes out. Reagan's up for re-election in 84. He wants to be Dirty Harry, and he is all of the things that people have kind of thrown onto the Dirty Harry franchise as far as it is this reactionary thing. It is, you know, picking on the hippies. It is going against the revolutionaries. That's what Reagan wanted to be. So this kind of fit him perfectly. And unfortunately, I think that Dirty Harry is kind of seen as, you know, the Ronald Reagan presidency instead of being the good movies that it was in the 70s. It's seen as this 1983 film, this kind of comeback. And I, I feel really bad for dirty Harry. Um, and I, you know what, after seeing Clint Eastwood talk to an empty chair, I think he probably got his rocks off on having Reagan quote him and everything. But to me, it's kind of sad that this is what dirty Harry has become. Well, then what do you think about how, even though we took a five year break, 1988 brought us the Deadpool, the first, and this is the way Fred put it to me on Facebook. And I believe he's right. The first meta dirty Harry film, because this film 
it wasn't necessarily a satire, but it was, okay, you can't have the four previous films with all of the car crashes and shot partners and all this over-the-top theatrics that this Harry Callahan character has gone through without him becoming part of pop culture in the continuity of the movies. That in this one, Harry is almost a cartoon character in the movies, and he knows it, and the movie knows it, and they play with this, which I thought was a brilliant angle. I know Fred does not. We'll get into that in a moment. The Deadpool is the most self-aware of all the Dirty Harry films. I think it's the most fun. It's probably my favorite for fun, not in quality, because obviously the first film's the best quality one. I loved the Deadpool. I thought it was it was satirizing parts of pop culture, horror movies specifically, or sa- I should say slasher movies specifically. It's de- definitely a part of that culture. I saw this one when it first came out. This is the first one I saw in the theater. I was 13 at the time. So just like when Fred saw Sudden Impact, I was the same age when I saw the Deadpool. Why do you think people hate this one so much, and do you? Well, the answer right off the bat is no, I don't hate this film. Uh, I actually enjoy it. I saw it in the theater also, 1988. I was 18. Uh, I rather enjoyed it. I don't look at it the same way I look at the the other films that I do like. It's got a lot of problems, though, Uh, a lot of problems. And what I was talking about with the meta that bothers me is not that it went meta at all. In fact, again, you can't do that much pop culture referencing and then not expect the la- well, what became the last of the series to address it. You know, it would be foolish to. The, the, the Dirty Harry of Sudden Impact was gone by this point. You couldn't have done him again. And so we kind of return to Detective Harry, or Inspector Harry Callahan again a bit. He becomes more of a, a human being again, which is nice. And his enemy is not the system, it's media. And that's a good, I, I think that's a great idea. I thought that was a really wonderful idea. The problem is, is the killer again. And this is where it doesn't work for me. We are too far from the killer. In fact, this is the farthest we've ever been from the killer in any film. And he's more of a joke than a serious threat. Right down to the fact that we have Harry end up on a film set at the end, minus his gun, killing the bad guy with an even bigger gun that's a movie prop on a movie set that failed for me 100 percent i think the idea was clever the car chase was clever with a little remote control car i thought that was really clever but i felt nothing but this killer was never a threat i never thought it was liam neeson they keep him in the shadows the whole movie we don't know who he is so keeping him in the shadows didn't matter at all i'm sorry that's where the movie falls apart for me it fails but it's enjoyable otherwise i don't know how liam neeson a really well-respected, very good actor from Ireland. I don't know how he can do one of the worst British accents I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> he is so terrible in this film. What's the problem, uh, love? Oh, God. Yeah, it's like he, yeah, it's it's so bad. I mean, I, I will admit that this is one of the few Dirty Harry films that I openly laugh at to see um, Jim Carrey <laughs> lip-syncing. Guns N' Roses <laughs> and doing his dance and everything. Yeah, again, we've got Dirty Harry trying to have a relationship. I don't necessarily buy it, but it w- worked okay. I will say that I like this movie a lot better than the previous film, that I will watch this one when it's on, but it definitely has some problems. Uh, that whole ending that we have did we see the killer beforehand had he even been in the film he, before he was, that? yeah he was the special effects guy that liam neeson was screaming at no security guard or the, the security guard sorry i knew he was i knew he was in the jim carrey music video part you, you actually saw him and he had like a line of dialogue or something it, that that's what i where i agree with fred the whole we're keeping him in the shadows because he's a character you've barely seen does not work. I would much rather, I know who Scorpio is. I want to see Scorpio, you know, like that was one of the things that I liked about this. It was, it worked to keep the Magnum force guys in the shadows. That worked for me, especially because you didn't know how many there were and that it could have been any one of the three, but yet it was and then, all, then all three, three of them. And all three would later become famous actors who you'd recognize instantly, too. Exactly. You know, and that they sacrificed the one guy, so that kind of threw you off and everything. I was just like, yeah, this really works. But yeah, keeping that guy in the shadows, I mean, even there was the part where it was the one dude with the beard, and he had the crew jacket on, and I was just like, oh, okay, it's the guy with the beard. 
who cares? I don't care about the criminal in this. And this just felt like so much of a retread of so many other films, uh, especially of Dirty Harry films. I mean, we've got the suicide attempt, and we've got this, and, and I'm just like, yeah, all right, I've seen all this before. It's kind of like a greatest hits thing, but then you guys are right. It really does take on a lot of this meta stuff and doing this whole idea of the the quips and the one-liners and you know that whole thing of like oh he's hanging around back there or whatever i'm just like you know by this time arnold schwarzenegger can do those lines so much better and i just i don't need to hear clint eastwood do these things it just really doesn't work for me so i'm i'm i know i'm slamming it quite a bit but i really it's not as bad to me as the previous film i would consider this kind of the dead cat bounce of the dirty harry franchise well, and then this film is also famous for two things that really don't have much to do with the film itself. One, as you pointed out, Jim Carrey. This was his first major film role in the film that got him noticed for subsequent roles. And Guns N' Roses. You got to remember, when this came out, this was the impetus for Appetite for Destruction selling the million copies that it did. Prior to the trailers coming out, which also used Welcome to the Jungle, they were still playing nightclubs. Then the trailers come out and they start getting radio play. Guns N' Roses' success is directly tied to this movie, as much as they hate that. By the way, they've had this movie and their link to it scrubbed from their official biography because they want Guns N' Roses want people to think they did this all on their own and that they don't want to be associated with this movie. This was a Lynch, you know, uh, it was a door hinge film just like the original. And this is where the door closes. You know, uh, just the year before, we had Lethal Weapon, and Harry comes out one year later in 88, and he looks as old, as as tired as you think he would. (laughs) By 89, we have the film that changes everything into the 90s, Batman. I'd also also say Die Hard. Yes. If you're talking action movies, Die Hard kind of proved that the Dirty Harry films were kind of old hat. It's over. Uh, Once you start making fun of yourself or anything i mean if you look at uh, the, you know the old universal monsters once they started the abbott and costello making fun of them it was over once mel brooks started making fun of westerns it was over when you start making fun of yourself it's definitely over well i guess it kind of fits in i mean you know we i don't think anybody would remember the previous film had it not been for the go ahead and make my day i mean that's the highlight of the film i like that you know, the first film in the franchise had the whole, you know, I know what you're thinking. Did he fire five, six, five shots or six? You know, that's a wonderful speech. And it's a speech. It's not just a throwaway line. And the, there's so much more to the movie than just that speech. Whereas with, you know, the, the fourth film, it can basically get boiled down to one line. This movie has a little bit more meat on its bones, but it is very fitting that it's in that kind of self-parody kind of world and yeah if you're going to go for one-liners and everything bruce willis is your guy right there you know i mentioned schwarzenegger but really some of the one-liners from die hard are their their classics as well now there was in the early 2000s they were threatening us with a six dirty harry film called grand torino now the plot has nothing to do with the grand torino we got so i don't know if that's a coincidence or a rewritten script the one that they were trying to do was Harry is now an old man, and his grandson, the fact that he never had a son, I guess, maybe illegitimate, whatever, his grandson is now a rookie police officer in San Francisco. Someone emulating the Scorpio killer is sniping people from rooftops and kills his grandson, so he comes out of retirement for that. And it was called, the script was called Grand Torino. Is it probably a good idea we didn't get that and we got the Grand Torino we did? Do you really even need to ask that question? I, the audience look, may not know you as well as I do. Look within your heart. You know it to be false. You know that that would have been a bad idea. It's too much of a coincidence that Gran Torino and Gran Torino aren't the same film or have some sort of relationship. It's not like it's such a catchy title that they figured they, they could use it for something else. Yeah, uh, so yeah, I definitely think that the Gran Torino that we got probably stemmed from those discussions from the from earlier but yeah i'm definitely glad that we didn't have that i mean we already had freaking space cowboys we don't need to have more old men kind of tottering around and coming back out of retirement to take down whoever so yeah i i 
we didn't need that film. Well, I, I, first of all, I'm going to agree with Mike completely. Uh, it's a good thing we didn't get it. And I think the film we've got already that we have now is actually a spiritual sequel to the Dirty Harry uh, character, in all honesty. I think this is Clint making peace with the character and saying goodbye. I felt that the whole time watching the movie. It just felt like it was him saying, this is it. This is my making peace with a lifetime of this. The character makes peace with a lifetime of violence deals with racism which dirty harry dealt with its entire career both on screen and off screen i really do feel this was just eastwood cleansing the palate if you will for his own future and just saying goodbye well and we also had one more thing we didn't get in 2007 we were supposed to get a dirty harry video game they released a trailer for it which wasn't any in-game stuff it was a completely pre-rendered trailer and it was supposed to be sort of the opposite of Grand Theft Auto, where it would be an open world, you have the whole city, but instead of going out to create mayhem, you would be there to try and stop the mayhem. From what, I was, what I'm reading on it, Clint Eastwood was on board with coming back to do the voice for Dirty Harry again, and then the company that was making the game got into financial trouble and it was cancelled. Again, is this probably a good thing we didn't get this? Or would you kind of have liked an open world Dirty Harry game in 2007? Uh, man, I hate to sound negative. I'm going to say I'm glad we didn't get it because, again, I just feel that it's over. It's done, and what's good is good, and what's bad is bad, and I don't think we need to go back. It, I, I'm, I don't know. Without the game in my hands, without seeing what they could have done with it, I mean, you can always be surprised, always. In art, that's the way it is. You can say, I don't want to see that movie. You see it, and you go, wow, that was fantastic. The same could be for the game. Personally, I'm glad it didn't happen. You know, I kind of thought there was a Dirty Harry video game called Lethal Enforcer. So, you know, the hearing the gunshots from the movie, those very particular sound effects of that 357 Magnum just took me into the video arcade where I was playing that shoot 'em up game. So, surprised that there hasn't been a Dirty Harry video game. I don't think there it actually was to one me. for the NES. The, the Nintendo had one, but it was awful. Okay. Well, yeah, video games don't necessarily enter into my pop culture realm, so it doesn't really matter to me. So, where can we find Mike the Projection Booth White? You can find me over at projection-booth.com. That dash is still bugging him, by the way, guys. Oh, yeah. And where can we find Frederick Fritz? I've got nothing right now, but I am working on a short film. So no podcasts or shows right now, but I am working on a short film that uh, I will uh, announce when it's done on the uh, Movie Apocalypse Facebook page. And then you can find me at 1201beyond.com as well as contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Make somebody's day. And remember to count bullets.
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.